Tonight we're going to be reading James chapter 2, verses 14 to 26. James 2, 14 to 26. This is probably the most well-known passage in the book of James. What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save him? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to him, Go, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about his physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, You have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by what I do. You believe that there is one God. Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. You foolish man, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our ancestor Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, And it was credited to him as righteousness. And he was called God's friend. You see that a person is justified by what he does and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction? As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. Now, for most of the sermon tonight, we're going to be walking through the images of faith and works that James gives us in this passage. I didn't realize this before we started this series on James, but James is just full of images. It seems like the man could hardly put pen to paper or the first century equivalent without throwing out images and examples. So we'll chart that out through the passage tonight. And along with that, this is probably the most well-known passage in James Because in it, James says some things that seem to contradict what Paul says in other parts of the New Testament. James is saying, or seems to be saying, that you need faith and works together to be saved, while Paul says in other places that you're saved by faith alone and not by works. So after we've worked through what James has to say, we'll compare that to what Paul has to say and see what we can do with the two of them together. So James begins this passage with a rhetorical question. What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save him? And the way that James asked this question clearly indicates that he expects a negative answer. James is saying that faith without deeds just isn't much good. Faith without deeds somehow isn't really saving faith. And right away, James gives a negative example of faith without deeds. Suppose you come on another Christian who's without clothes or food or some other necessity. And instead of helping, someone just tells them, good luck with that. I wish you well. Keep warm and well fed. What good would that be? And obviously, James intends us to answer that question by saying, well, obviously, that's not much good at all. James here is picking up on the text that we read last week, verses 1 to 13 of James chapter 2, 
And in that verse, James really went after people who were showing favoritism to the rich and neglecting the poor. In those verses, James wants to point to our glorious Lord Jesus Christ and tell his readers, don't look to earthly wealth. That isn't much good. Instead, look to Jesus and follow his example. And Jesus' example was to empty himself and to become like a servant of all. Jesus' example was to love us so much that he suffered and died for the poor and the needy both the materially poor and the spiritually poor. And so, says James, believers need to follow the kingdom royal law to love your neighbor as yourself. So then when we get to our verses for tonight, James is picking up on those themes from previous verses. If you're really following Jesus, then you're going to love your neighbor. Jesus helped us when we were poor and needy spiritually, so when we follow Jesus, it just makes sense that we would help the poor and needy. It is not enough to just say nice things to somebody, but never actually do anything for them. It just doesn't make sense, James is saying, that someone would really believe in God and yet disobey this fundamental command, God's great command to love their neighbor. Genuine faith is more than just agreeing that something is true. A so-called faith without commitment is no better than what the demons have. And as verse 19 says, you believe that there's one God, good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. Now in that verse, James is referencing one of the key Jewish confessions of faith called the Shema, which we find in Deuteronomy chapter 6. And the Shema starts, begins in verse 4 with, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And then it goes on in verse 5 to say, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. And then Deuteronomy tells the Israelites to impress this on their children, to think about it when they're at home and when they're on the road, to think about it when they lay down and when they get up all the time. These commandments, as summarized in the Shema, were to be on the minds of the Jewish people. Now, remember that James is written primarily to early Jewish Christians. They were probably from Jerusalem, and then they had been scattered out in a persecution, and they were living in surrounding areas. And James, the great church leader, wrote this letter to encourage and to teach this dispersed group of Jewish Christians. So when in verse 18 he says, "'You believe that there is one God,' He's referencing a profession of faith that these people would have had always in front of their minds, ones that, one that they would have recited often. But then James turns that saying around to give his second negative example. That is not enough, he says. You believe that there's a one God? Well, great for you, but even the demons believe that, and they still shudder. This would have been a huge shock to James' audience. But of course, it's true. The demons do know about God. They do, in some sense, believe that God is one. Even the demons, in some sense, have Deuteronomy 6, 4 down, but they never get to Deuteronomy 6, 5. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and strength. And that's James's point here. What good is it if you make the profession, 
but you don't really have the commitment. What good is it to have some level of knowledge but absolutely no love? What good is a profession of faith without a commitment to the faith? Lip service by itself is worthless. False faith is demonic in recognizing the truth about God but refusing to do anything about it, refusing to commit to loving God and neighbor and refusing to act on that commitment. Faith without deeds just doesn't work, James says in verse 20. It's useless. It doesn't go anywhere. It's dead. But then James gives us a couple examples of faith with deeds. And James first takes us back to Abraham and the time that Abraham was told to go and to offer his son Isaac as a sacrifice. Now Isaac was Abraham's miracle child. Abraham and his wife Sarah had waited decades for this son. And God had promised that Isaac would be the one who would provide Abraham with descendants beyond number. Isaac would be the one in whom God fulfilled his promises to Abraham. But then God came to Abraham and asked him to go and sacrifice Isaac. And Abraham in faith went to obey. He trusted that God would somehow still fulfill his promise. And of course, as the story goes, God interrupts that sacrifice. And in the end, Abraham and Isaac together sacrifice a ram that God has provided. Now that's one example, but throughout his whole life, Abraham showed by his actions that he really trusted God and was really committed to God to the depths of his being. Abraham trusted in God's promise, and because of that trust, God counted him righteous. In the whole of the Abraham story, God counted Abraham righteous because he trusted in God's promises. It wasn't that Abraham always did everything exactly right. It wasn't that Abraham always followed all of God's commands perfectly. It was that Abraham had a lived commitment to his Lord, no matter what the cost might be. Abraham didn't earn his way into God's favor, but Abraham didn't just have a theoretical lip service faith either. When God called, Abraham went. When God called, Abraham answered, and he stepped out in faith. His faith had legs on it. His faith was made complete by acting on it. And after James talks about Abraham, he goes to the opposite end of the spectrum and he gives the example of Rahab the prostitute. Abraham was a great patriarch of the Jewish people. He was the father of all believers. But Rahab, on the other hand, Rahab was a Gentile. Rahab was a prostitute. Rahab lived in Jericho, a city of God's enemies. Rahab is not someone you would expect to see as an example of faith. But in Joshua 2, the Israelites had sent two spies into Jericho. And along with the other people in Jericho, Rahab had heard stories about how the Lord, the God of Israel, was really the true God. And he was really with the Israelites. And so Rahab trusted in that God and in his people. And she saved the Israelite spies from being killed. And Rahab's commitment there was a dangerous and costly decision. If she had been found out with those spies, she probably would have been killed along with them. But she trusted that the Lord, the God of the Israelites, was truly the God of the heavens and the earth, and she stepped out in faith and put her life in God's hands. Both Abraham and Rahab had faith with deeds. 
It's not that they lived perfect lives, but when the point of decision came, they lived out their commitment to the Lord. They didn't just make empty professions of faith. Their actions matched their words. Their deeds matched their faith. Their faith worked. And so James concludes this section by saying, as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead. Faith without works is dead. Now we'll use that imagery as we shift into our next section of trying to figure out how we can fit James and Paul together. Now, as I said earlier, part of why this passage is so well known is that James here doesn't quite seem to line up with what Paul has to say in other parts of the New Testament. James here seems to be saying that you need faith and works to be saved. But Paul is famous for saying that you're only saved by faith and not by works. Let's take a look at James 2.24 next to Romans 3.28 for one of the clearest examples of this. James 2.24 says... A person is justified by what he does and not by faith alone. A person is justified by what he does and not by faith alone. But Romans 3.28 says, A person is justified by faith apart from observing the law. A person is justified by faith apart from observing the law. So James apparently says that being right before God comes from faith plus works, but Paul apparently is saying that being right before God comes from faith apart from works. You see the challenge here. Now, one way to resolve this challenge is to just say that James and Paul are in conflict. This is becoming an increasingly popular scholarly option, so you see commentators just saying, oh, James and Paul disagreed, and here's all the list of differences. And then they construct detailed hypothetical situations of this church in conflict with that church, and James is representative of that group, and Paul is representative of that group, and you end up with this mess of contradictions and just not helpful stuff about understanding James and Paul. That's an easy way out, and like most easy way outs, it's not actually all that helpful in the end for believers. Both James and Romans are books in the New Testament. They both take the Old Testament tradition, they work it through Christ, and they speak to the church, to the people who gather in the name of Jesus Christ. The church has accepted all of these letters for hundreds and thousands of years. They both fit. So for people just to say that they're in conflict and there's no way to work them together really doesn't work for a group of people who are committed to the unity of the Bible and to the community of the church through the ages. Now, a softer option and a more helpful one is to say that James here is responding to a misunderstanding of Paul's teaching. Paul has been teaching. Some people have gotten him wrong. And so they're saying, hey, as long as we believe, as long as we say, yeah, yeah, that's true, we can do anything we want. As long as we give lip service to Christ, we can go out and partay. And there is going to be nothing wrong with us in the end. Now, there's something to this view of trying to say James is responding to abuses of Paul's teaching, but it doesn't get us all the way there yet because we have what James says and we have what Romans says, and we still need to figure out how they fit in our life of faith. Now, the key here, I think the way that we can best understand Paul and James together is to think that they are looking at different parts of the life 
of faith. Paul is saying that God's grace alone brings us from death to life, and our works do nothing to get us into that new life. But James is saying that a truly living faith will naturally, necessarily overflow into good works. Let's begin with Paul. In Romans 3 and other places where he talks about justification by faith, Paul is by and large thinking of people before they became believers. He's telling his audience, before Christ claimed you, you were dead in your sins. You were not able to do anything to save yourselves. You needed to be saved by Christ's sacrifice. Because God is merciful and loving, he graciously saved you. He brought you back from the dead. When Paul says in Romans 3 that a person is justified by faith apart from works, his point is that good works don't save people. God's grace saves people. And the only way we grab hold of that grace is by faithfully throwing ourselves on God's mercy. Paul's words in Romans 3.28 and elsewhere are about the move from being dead in sin to being made alive in Christ. Paul is looking at the beginning of the Christian life. He's looking at the point when God declares someone righteous because Christ's blood covers their sin. But James, is instead of looking at the beginning of the Christian life, is looking at the whole course of someone's Christian life. James is thinking of people who now are claiming to believe, be believers. So he's looking at people who claim to have been brought from death to life, and he's telling them, if you're really alive, you need to get up and walk. If you're alive and you know it, show it. When James says that a person is justified by what they do along with faith, his point is that genuine faith just has to produce a genuine response of works. If people have been brought back from death to life, they don't just lay there and act dead. They get up and they act alive. James is looking at the whole course of the Christian life and he's saying that anybody who is really alive in Christ is going to act like it. Even the demons can sit there and affirm that some things are true about God. But James insists that a genuine commitment, a genuine faith in God is going to involve action. If that commitment is genuine, it will overflow into loving God and loving our neighbors. Basically, James, or basically Paul is saying that God's grace brings people from spiritual death to spiritual life. And we receive that grace through faith not because of what we have done. And then after that, James is saying that people who have really been brought to life will do good things. They're looking at different points in the process of salvation. Now, the structure of the Heidelberg Catechism can give us kind of another way into thinking about this. When we talk about the big picture of the Catechism, we can talk about the move from guilt to grace to gratitude or from sin to salvation to service, whichever schema you like better. But we start out guilty before God. God graciously saves us. And then out of that salvation comes this flowing spring of gratitude for what God has done in our life. Paul is looking at that move from guilt to grace. And that move is all about what God does in bringing sinners back to life. But James is looking at the grace 
to gratitude movement or the salvation to service transition. And that move starts with God's work, but it ends and continues with God's people gratefully doing good works in the life-giving power of the Spirit. It's hard to track down who originally said this, but there's this quote, faith alone justifies, but true faith can never be alone. Faith alone justifies, but true faith can never be alone. That's James and Paul together in a nutshell. We are justified by God's grace through faith, but real faith always leads us on to love God and to love our neighbors. So James isn't giving us two ways to salvation. He's not saying that you can pick the road you want to go down, you can pick the road of works, or you can pick the road of faith. What he's saying is that in the long view, in the perspective of eternity, a faith, a so-called faith, that doesn't lead to loving God and loving one's neighbor is no kind of faith at all. Faith that doesn't involve deeds doesn't work. It's empty of reality. It's even demonic in its disregard for God and for other people. A faith without deeds is a dead faith. Genuine faith commits itself to God's covenant faithfulness. Genuine faith leads us, like Abraham, to respond to God's work in our lives, to trust God, and to do what he calls us to do. Genuine faith leads us, like Rahab, to entrust our safety to the Lord, the God of heavens and earth, and to do his will, even when it puts us in difficult and dangerous situations. God has truly brought his people from death to life in Christ. The natural response to God's work is to get up and walk in a faith that overflows into action. Without Christ, we are stuck in our sins regardless of what we do. But with Christ, with Christ, we are saved by grace and our response of faith overflows into deeds of love and service to our Lord.